Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Joining me today is Chalcedon President Mark Rushduni. I've asked him to come and discuss a biblical doctrine that for some strange reason upsets many professing believers. As his father pointed out in a 1972 essay entitled Predestination, quote, predestination is simply the doctrine of total law, total government, and total planning. The important question is not, do we believe in it, but rather, whose predestination do we believe in, unquote. Mark, thanks for joining me. Good to be with you today, Andrea. So, if not predestination, if there was some way that predestination wasn't an inescapable fact, then what we would be left with is a universe of meaninglessness, chance, or what Cornelius Van Til referred to as brute factuality. Now, most people know what meaninglessness and chance are. Explain, if you would, the concept of brute factuality. Well, the uh, idea of brute factuality is that there are just random facts that have no attachment one to another. And it really comes from naturalistic Darwinian perspective that we're just a random mingling of physical forces and matter and that they don't necessarily have any relation one to another. So facts are just there and they're to be interpreted. Now, the idea of brute factuality often comes with the assumption that there's some sort of meaning that man can decipher from them, but that they do not relate really one to another. Man often has to resort to to borrowing the concept of meaning, even to identify that there are facts to be observed. So the idea of a brute factuality is that there, there's no overarching meaning or worldview that relates facts. Okay, so I mentioned at the outset that for some strange reason, you will have Christians that will say, oh, no, I can't believe in predestination. And if they don't believe in predestination by God, then what are they left with? They're left with largely nothing chance, which is interestingly enough, the worldview that uh, Darwin forced on modern man. Darwin is, was, has been one of the most powerful intellectual forces in, of modern times because he forced man to go to the, the far end of the extreme of theism and a sovereign God. In Darwin's scheme, there really wasn't any room for meaning or, or purpose Everything was just random chance. So Darwin left us with something empty. In other words, without the idea of predestination, that there is a force, a law, a plan, a government over things, you're left with chance. And throughout history, men have, in various ways, particularly in the modern era since the Enlightenment, have tried to explain a world without God. In other words, a non-theistic interpretation of the world. And that's pretty much the, the sum of the direction of all modern philosophical strains of thought. They differ one with another, but they're all trying to explain a world without God. And they come in varying degrees towards the idea that there is no meaning. And that's essentially the direction that, that Darwin has taken modern man. And modern man has been reacting to Darwin in various ways. But Darwin basically pushed man off the cliff, pushed the whole philosophy of the West really off the cliff. Men are trying to make some sense of it and explain it some way, but they don't want to go back to theism. Right. And that that's pretty much summarizes where modern man is. So here's my question. I can understand that those who embrace evolution would embrace this way of thinking, but you have the church today in the evangelical circles and whatnot saying how evolution is not true and how Darwin was wrong. He's the boogeyman, but they don't realize that by denying God's predestinating power, as your father put it, God's total government, his total law and his total planning, 
they don't even realize they're attaching themselves to a worldview that they say they don't agree with and despise. Right. As I said, modern philosophy is kind of on a spectrum from theism and a sovereign God to meaningless nihilism, basically. And a lot of Christians want to believe in God, but the God they believe in has only occasional interactions with the world. So they may believe that God started things because that gives the world purpose. It, it gives a, a, an overall explanation, but they aren't really consistent in their thinking. So they want to believe that God sort of started the world. And there have been various ideas throughout the centuries, such as the idea that God started things, but then kind of left it on its own. And they want to blend this, the worldview of Darwin with, with that of a, a theistic view that we have, for instance, in, in Genesis. And so they mingle these ideas, but yeah, there has to be meaning and purpose. And if you believe in, in meaning and purpose, then where did those come from? And Darwin didn't really allow for any kind of meaning, purpose, morality, ethics. And yet philosophers have been trying to come up with some kind of explanation for it. And this is where uh, Cornelius Van Til's uh, phrase, integration into the void, because really they're just trying to find their place in a meaningless world. They've got nowhere to go with their explanation except to the full extent of Darwin's implication that it's a void. It's a meaningless nothingness, and life is meaningless. It's so, really the direction of modern man. So after we had this, let's say, biblical view of God devolve into this deistic view, you know, the watchmaker winds up the watch, it keeps ticking, but he goes away and he's doing something else. Then with the Enlightenment, there was this idea that nature, so we now took it away from God and we use this collective noun, nature, and we gave it a personality. Even to this day, when we listen to meteorological reports about hurricanes or tornadoes, we'll hear that Mother Nature was is angry, right? So there's this, per they'll never say God is angry, they'll say Mother Nature. But with Darwin, even the whole concept of naturalism went away. And it's one of the reasons that your father points out that Karl Marx loved Darwinism so much. Why did he like it? Because it fed into his anti-theistic worldview. And so he said that Darwin in the realm of biological sciences was heading in the same thing that he wanted to go socially with his economic and historical theories. So they were working in different spheres, but Marx saw that Darwin was a co-laborer in his view. And as you said, the Enlightenment had some kind of a concept of God as as in her first cause. And so that's where the idea that there's a natural law, that they're just built in, there's a sense built into the world in which we live, because we do see order. We do see some kind of a meaning and a direction in what is sometimes called nature, even. And so the idea of natural law allowed for some sort of a meaning and purpose. And then along comes Darwin, however, and Darwin explained things ostensibly in a, in a scientific biological way and said, no, it's all just random chance and random mutation. And so he really, in a philosophical sense, he really knocked the supports out from under the whole idea of enlightenment's natural law and so darwin really has severed modern man and we're only to, to darwin we're only going back 150 years or so he really severed modern man from the whole idea that there can be any meaning in life we it, even the idea of uh, the enlightenment's view of natural law assumed that there was some kind of order and man just had to find it and synthesize his thought in terms of what he observed in the world. But even that Enlightenment view was a rather humanistic because according to that humanistic view, it was up to man to find that order and man to, to understand and comprehend and operate in terms of that natural law order. So my father never liked the term natural law. A lot of Christians have wanted to adopt it, but that's basically going to the older pre-Darwin era.
that uh, uh, Darwin really made impossible in the modern man. And so since Darwin, Western thought has gone progressively in this direction that Cornelius Van Til described as integration into the void. Just they're running full tilt towards a belief in nothingness and a confidence in nothingness. Modern society is really increasingly reflecting that direction. Okay, so this essay that I'm referring to was written in 1972. And it's funny, personally, when I look at that, I'm like, wow, that was a year out of high school for me. And he points out that he says, and even seven-year-olds today are committing suicide. Now, now that shocked me because, wait a minute, in my day when I was in high school and graduating from high school, people were committing suicide. Well, look at the suicide rate today. Look at the confusion as people search for meaning, whether they do it with fentanyl or whether they do it deciding that they weren't born in the right body. And yet, as this meaninglessness pervades, we have people discovering that their search for meaning isn't bringing about a resolution if they do it apart from God. No, well, that's that's the tendency of of all rebellion against God. It does lead to disillusionment because there's no hope in it, so it can't go anywhere other than disillusionment. What what Paul described in Romans 1 in a moral sense, in the degeneracy of, of modern man, we're seeing increasingly in our day philosophically, and that's coming out in our society and our, our culture. It's it's this degeneracy of uh, thought is is very much in evidence. So predestination is not only a religious concept, but it manifests itself as a political concept. And sometimes it gets redefined as scientific determinism or dialectical materialism or scientific socialist planning. These are all efforts for a predestination of man. And then, of course, if it's not going to be God, who is it going to be? Right. There has to be some planning. As we've said before, man is a creature, and he's created in the image of God. So when man rebels against God, he really doesn't establish any independence from God. What he has to do is he has to borrow the categories of his existence and the categories of thought that are established by God, and he just tries to uh, reshape those and make it look like something original. And so all his categories of, of thoughts are really borrowed. So if, if he says, I don't believe in a sovereign God, in fact, I don't want to believe in a God at all, well, the functions of God, man is basically taking to himself, and that was the first temptation. Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. In other words, you'll be a God, not in the sense that you will understand, because gods don't determine good and evil just by understanding it and interpreting it. They determine good and evil. And so you'll become godlike. You'll become the center of everything was the, was the temptation. And my father said, that's the root of humanism. Man refusing to think God's thoughts after him and to obey God because he's now a, a rebel. So man borrows these ideas and predestination is one of them, but man doesn't want to call it predestination. He'll give it a non theological term and uh, define it in a way to avoid the fact that he's just borrowing God's thinking. But somebody has to be creating this order. And throughout much of history, that planning, that order all came through the state. Because you have to remember, in the ancient world, categories of thought were a little different. It was generally understood by all that man is something of a religious being. And so man... Uh, they recognized it. They didn't try to deny that. So religion and philosophy and science were all tied together. People didn't try to separate them as they do in the modern era. That separation really began with the uh, uh, Enlightenment, trying to separate uh, these things out and basically put religion over in a box. But that doesn't mean they're any less religious. So the state has always been a very powerful force in this attempt of humanistic man to try to control, plan, be the overarching law and determiner in in life. 
And so that's why the ancient world knew tyranny and only tyranny. Whatever the government structure was, the political system was always in control. And so we're more familiar with the fact that the pharaohs actually claimed to be divine. That's why they only married within their, their family. And of course, that led to physical deformities and health degeneracies of the pharaohs, as we know from their mummies. But they actually claimed to be gods. In other cultures, the kings claimed to be the, the chosen one of the gods and somehow a, a priestly mediatorial function. But religion and government and philosophy even and science were all seen as related. And it's only been in the modern world that men have tried to get away from the Christian influence by boxing religion off as a separate category, but they still have to assume a lot of the functions of religion, and that includes uh, planning and control. And so the issue of sovereignty, my dad wrote a whole book was titled Sovereignty, whole idea of who is really in control. My father wrote a lot about statism because he said this is one of the great alternatives man has created to theism is this is statism that the state is actually supreme, and therefore he also worked very hard for the independence of the church and Christian organizations to operate their ministries because he said the kingdom of God is an independent realm. The theme of Christ from the beginning of his ministry to the last week of his ministry in Jerusalem was the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Same means the same thing. Uh, Why is he talking about what he's doing in terms of a king? Because he is Lord. He has jurisdiction and therefore he has a law. And this is not a prerogative of man as an individual in anarchism, or more commonly in the form of statism. So man taking to himself more power, more authority than he ought. This is, it goes back to Genesis three and trying to be as gods. And so this attempt to be all powerful and control all things is inevitable. And you were talking about Christians kind of giving away things in in one area, another area that Christians have sort of uh, really yielded up their strongest case is that they don't understand this idea that the reason we believe in freedom of uh, religion and the independence of the church from state control is because we serve a different kingdom and it represents a different kingdom that is really not in competition with the political order, but it does have its own authority and we ought to obey God rather than men so that the the independence of the church is not just a tax issue and it's not something the government gave us as a benefit that we want to retain. It's something that we have by right because we serve that kingdom and the financial resources of that kingdom, for instance, are not taxable because there's no jurisdiction of any statist political order over the kingdom of God and its resources. So we give up too much in the way of arguments that have been developed over the centuries by by Christian thinkers. So that's it's another a good reason we need to understand a little bit more about the these great issues as they played out throughout Christian history. And if you think about it, The history of the church, starting from Jesus's ministry, was a battle between biblical faith and statism. And the Pharisees were statists in as much as they were willing to grant that Rome had some authority and and they made a deal. And it wasn't because they were working in the best interests of those who were under their authority or their ministry. And so if you don't know church history, you don't know that the first centuries were continuous battles between statism influencing itself in the church and trying to establish itself as, yeah, yeah, we'll accept your religion as long as you say, like Caesar said, I'm Lord, Jesus isn't. Right. And a, and a good example of that is the, the claim made 
by the religious leaders in Jerusalem after Lazarus was raised from the dead. When Lazarus was raised, that was just a stone's throw away from Jerusalem. So it was common knowledge. This was the biggest miracle that Jesus had occurred, and it was well known at the time and to the you know people in Jerusalem. And they got together. They'd been opposing Christ for some times, but they got together and were specifically told in the Gospels that they met and they decided that Jesus had to die. And, it, and they said it was for the good of Israel that Jesus had to die because all men would believe in him. And then because the Pharisees lost their political clout with Rome, they said that that uh, the nation would suffer. In other words, the Pharisees thought that their political relationship with Rome was what was saving Israel, not God. But they had come to terms with Rome and they were holding Israel together. They were in control and that if people believed in Jesus as the Messiah, their political clout would come to an end. They obviously knew what, what Jesus had said to them in, on more than a few occasions. And they said that we're holding everything together. So they were very much statists in uh, this alliance they had with Rome. So they did see G- the movement of Jesus and what he was saying as very much an alternative to their control of the situation. And so when you think about the baptismal creeds, even saying Jesus is King and Lord, or the Apostles' Creed, which was basically what you believe in terms of being a Christian, this was radical. This was like a declaration of war. And so the fact that people in many churches have never even heard of these creeds and understood what when people were baptized how they were putting themselves on the line. Now it just becomes sort of a symbolic formality as opposed to a profession of allegiance. Right. And this was the issue when, uh, well, even when Christ was brought before Pilate, just prior to the crucifixion, he questioned him about his claims to be a king. And Jesus really, I, I read what, what Jesus said, is my kingdom is not of this world. He let Pilate think that his kingdom was some mystical, esoteric thing. He didn't get into a discussion with Pilate. As soon as Pilate thought that this is, you're not a political kingdom, you're not encouraging your followers to bring up swords, so you, therefore you're no threat to uh, Rome, and you're just some sort of a philosophical, mystical kingdom. This is some sort of an analogy and so Pilate basically dismissed it and he, and decided that Jesus really hadn't done anything wrong and he was not guilty. But then if you go move forward again, the concern was the political implications when um, the uh, people feared, were told in Acts that the Christians would bring down the wrath of Rome. And in fact, when persecutions did arise, people were given the option you don't have to be executed for your faith. All you have to do is offer incense to Caesar, which represented a prayer, a worship, or say the words, Caesar is Lord. Instead of Jesus is Lord, Say just say Caesar is Lord. As long as Caesar is number one, Jesus can be number two. <laughs> and people went to their death for not saying that. And those who did compromise, then those who did say Caesar is Lord, there was a great debate in the early church whether they should ever be allowed back in the church uh, again because both sides saw the idea of lordship and whose kingdom are you talking about and whose kingdom is the supreme one and uh, and that, all that comes back to, to predestination who is lord because lord meant more than just a title of respect like we think of it in in like the english tradition just you're just a noble someone to be respected lord meant king you were a ruler and so to call jesus lord was itself a very very dangerous thing and we use that term very very loosely in the church today and it's used by many people who are in fact statists they also reject the law of that lord the word of that lord in many cases and yet they were continue to refer to him as Lord, which is really blasphemous. Yes. So you mentioned that during the time of 
Darwinian thought gaining prominence that I think in another conversation we once had, you pointed out that his book sold out really quickly, that people were ready for Darwin. And the fact that somebody put it down on paper, it was sort of a hallelujah moment. Now, now we can look things the way we want to. So where did that fertile ground come from? Was it an enlightenment carryover? Uh, yes, because men were looking, by the time of Darwin, men were definitely looking for alternatives to the theism. You have to remember Puritanism had long been dead, even in America, although the, the, the impact of the Enlightenment came to America after it had made great strides in Europe. We came later into, into this full Enlightenment picture. But men were looking for explanations that were less theistic. They were moving away from any kind of an outspoken uh, Christianity. So they were looking for more of this naturalistic perspective. So when uh, Darwin's, you know, sometimes hear it said that, you know, Darwin's uh, book sold out on the first day of publication. What that doesn't mean that it was put in bookstores simultaneously and people rushed in, individuals rushed in to buy it. it. Says there were orders for it. In other words, groups were so desirous of seeing this, just the thesis of Darwin make the light of day, that the first printing had orders sufficient as soon as it was came off the presses. Okay, so you mentioned that this Enlightenment thinking and this idea of let's push God out of the way, and maybe eventually everybody will forget about him, took place really like 150 years ago. To me, it's interesting that the eschatology of we don't have to worry about what happens on this world or in this world because God is going to rapture the church. Do you think those two things go together or it just happenstance that they sort of took root at the same time? Well, there's an extensive history to the decline in the church and the shift in its eschatology and its hope. And I'm not an expert in that at all. To some respects, it was the rise, definitely, of post-Christian thought. That was certainly propelled by Darwin and his influence. And in, just in that Scopes trial, I think in 1920s or thereabout, led to a ridicule of uh, young earth and creationism that the church basically backed off that as an issue, which really revealed something in the church by the 1920s. They were already in a state of retreat, and they decided very early that they there were some issues that they just didn't want to try to defend. And then you had the rise of fundamentalism. And the problem with fundamentalism, if you read a lot of what the fundamentalists were saying early on, you would agree with much of it because they were trying to focus on just the fundamentals of the faith like the Trinity and the virgin birth and, and so forth, like the, and the inspiration of the Bible, you know, good stuff. But the problem was that was a retreatist position. We'll just focus on the essentials of Christianity and not a full-orbed expanding faith. And so they became retreatist, and then their eschatology became retreatist early in the 20th century. That So the compromise and their treat and their eschatology all took place simultaneously. So there was this force of secularism that was trying to explain the world in a non-theistic way. And the church was then basically in one front after another in retreat instead of being forceful about the actual claims of God. So some people might ask, why does God allow this ebb and flow. Sometimes in history, biblical faith prevails. Sometimes the whole idea of statism prevails. And rather than sitting in judgment of God, it seems to me that one way to look at this is God is continually going to refine and test his church as to whether or not they're going to reject his total law, his total government and total planning. And if and when they do, they reap the consequences. Yes, it's it's a, a little discouraging, but we have uh, examples of that in, in the history of the Hebrews. I mean, the Old Testament has some you know encouraging and 
uh, wonderful stories that make, you know, particularly the stuff that, you know, that is taught in, in Sunday school lessons about God's people standing in terms of his truth, but it has a lot in there of the increasing apostasy of the people that took place over centuries. So by the time of the fall of Jerusalem, the Hebrew people were thoroughly apostate. They were worshiping Baal. They, they, this was a fertility, a, a vulgar fertility cult, and they never repudiated him. They just kind of kept him as, as a lesser deity, a deity really that had been influential in their past. And so we, we've seen this throughout history, and in the Old Testament, the, the term comes up that God says he will bring up a remnant. And one of the interesting things really in biblical history as well as uh, Christian history is there are very few individuals or even movements that can be credited with advancing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has grown, but there's growth here, there's retreat, there's compromise, there's the death of this movement or this individual, and somewhere there's a dynamic elsewhere. And I've always thought that was interesting because, and, and the great men of Christian history, we really remember because they took a stand theologically on an issue or pointed men back to the Bible or pointed out a particular evil that this church had to take a stand for. But you can't name a single individual that has been the cause that Christianity has really progressed at any point in history. And so Christ is moving his church forward, but we're also learning the hard way that sin doesn't work. Just like Adam and Eve learned very quickly that that sin wasn't going to be to their advantage, and they very early saw the issue between Cain and evil. Then they saw there was increasing degeneracy until the time of Noah, and God did a mighty work. But this is the way it's been throughout history. And so there is no man, there's no nation, there's no movement in history that can be given really credit for the continuity of the kingdom of, of God. It's totally the work of Christ and his and the Holy Spirit. Yes. And so we're just muddling through, making mistake after mistake. And that's, you know, you see that in a microcosm on, on Facebook. You think the most fundamental doctrines are now being repudiated on theological discussion groups or being questioned. And just when you think you've seen some progress and you're encouraged, you see something that just is, is very disconcerting. So that brings me to the final point that I appreciated in your father's essay. And it always amazes me that we're looking at stuff from 50 years ago and he saw the seedlings that were going to grow into a lot of what people don't like today. But as he was a student of the word and a student of his time, he saw that there was an emerging next step in evolution that was going to be posited. Sometimes he talked about it as the the next step was the deification or the exaltation of the criminal, that really he was free from the restraints of the past. And in this essay, there were hints of the idea that's now being described as transhumanism and the fact that man is really obsolete. We don't really need men anymore. The, the elite planners are like, we we are where we want to be. You know, we've got our tower, our modern tower of Babel, where we want it. We don't need people anymore. So, you know, we can decide to reduce the population because we don't really need them because our machinery, our science is going to make it so that with artificial intelligence and these cloned robots or whatever they are envisioning, this will be the final fisted God that says, aha, see, we got gotcha. you. Right. He often quoted Genesis uh, 3, 5, the temptation of Satan to Eve, ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil, which he interpreted as saying, implying ye shall be as gods, determining for yourselves what is good and evil. And I think he saw that as as basically encapsulating the drift of all humanism. In other words, if you're not 
theistic, you're going to be humanistic in one way or another. And humanism, as with all rebellion against God, it doesn't move in one linear direction. It's like a scattergun. Men run away from God in every direction possible. And you see this chaotic and confusing mess of modern philosophy and modern ideas. And it just seems a muddled mess, particularly if you have any kind of a Christian worldview. But certain things become popular in modern thought. Uh, now, one of them that we see that um, the culture I mean, you could blame some people for promoting it, financing it, but ultimately men like to catch on to something, a trend. It's just like a a fad in toys or clothing philosophies uh, move in terms of what other people are adopting to. There's, there's a fads. And and now this whole idea of, like you say, this transhumanism, which says, you know, we, we cannot, we don't have to be limited by our humanity. We can transcend humanity basically by technology with computers and uh, scientific advances. We can have a, you know, just really strange stuff. But they, this, this cult of science has reemerged. It's, it's, it's odd. I'm no in, expert on this, but in the sixties in the space race, there was a cult of science, but what existed then had sort of a Christian um, worldview overtone to it inadvertently because it says we're going to do great things with our scientific knowledge. We're going to improve mankind and uh, we're going to do what we're doing now, only a much better. And we can even, you know, live on the moon and live on planets and so forth. But, and this, there was this cult of science, it was called that men believed that we could accomplish everything. And then there was kind of a reaction to that. And the whole environment, ecology, and then the environmental movement, I believe that, wait a minute, maybe, maybe our problem is science. Maybe our problem is man. Maybe we're becoming too powerful and we're destroying our environment. Man is, is using his technology in such a way, in ways that he can't, is out of control and he's actually destroying the planet and thereby destroying the ability of life on earth to continue to evolve as it should. In other words, man's gotten too smart and he's messing everything up. That's the kind of the thesis of the environmental movement. And so we basically need to start controlling man in order to allow uh, this bright evolutionary past that our future that's still possible. And now in just in the last few years, we're kind of going back to a cult of science and that we can transform men by our technology to be anything they want but it all goes back to ye shall be as gods and now men are trying to literally not just in a religious sense to be gods or in their powers to be god but actually we can transform ourselves ultimately through science and we can be anything we want to be and they haven't exactly defined what that's going to look like or what or anything of the like, because, you know, when, uh, years ago, there was a, you know, TV shows about bionic people and who had, you know, pretty much superpowers because of science. And we've kind of gone back to that a silly notion, but I haven't heard a good explanation where they think this, this, this transhumanism, what direction it's really taking and what, what the end result of that might be. Well, regardless of whether or not they have posited it, what we're seeing is statist predestination. In other words, the environment's now being compromised, so we're going to make sure that you can't use fossil fuels. We're going to make it so everybody has to go electric. Oh, gee, our electric grid goes down regularly. Okay, now we're going to say this. In other words, God's plan is his working together all things for the good. Man never will be able to do it because man isn't God, no matter how much he wants to play God. And so what I guess upsets me, frustrates me, I don't know the accurate word, is when Christians decide we've got to fight this latest ism as opposed to applying the truths of God's word to their life. So let's debate forever on when this happened or when that happened or whether this is right or this. And meanwhile, their communities are falling apart because they're not putting forth 
this is what God's law says to do in terms of advancing the kingdom. And so they would rather document the evils, thinking that when you document the evils, you've done something other than document the evils. Very rarely, since you don't have the teaching and application of God's law, all they can do is document the evils and and wait for the escape. Right. And that's, I think, always been a problem. I think throughout my lifetime, it seems as though evil just has a better idea of how to um, promote evil than Christians have to promote what is good. And there's a hard work to promoting the kingdom of God. In fact, it usually looks like work. For instance, Christian education. It was done by people who are willing to, to sit in church basements with students and, and try to rethink what the Christian worldview really looks like. And it, it wasn't an easy solution. And I think Christians, if they want an easy faith, an easy religion, they want easy solutions and easy responses. And they don't want to go through the hard work of actually doing, you know, kingdom work. And yet a lot of the parables of Jesus about when the masters left involved uh, servants. And did the servants do the work that was left them? What were the servants engaged in while the master was absent? And so that's where we are. That's where all Christians have always been. What are we doing in the service of our Lord, in the service of the kingdom? It's not just to point out the evil that we see in the world. And not to finance the next candidate who's promising all the stuff that the other guys promised, but, you know, has a nicer smile or whatever it is. I think in a conversation with your father, he once said, if people put the resources they put into political campaigns, and not that he was really against supporting godly politicians, but he was against supporting guys who were almost right or were better than the bad guys, as opposed to really building the future. And I've always taken that to be the correct way to proceed. In other words, God promised victory. I don't have to engineer it. I just have to be faithful. Right. Years ago, back in the the 60s, my father met a man who was known throughout Southern California. And his name was, was just very well known for a major business that he had started. And he helped my father at the very beginning of Cal Steden, but he made it known that this wasn't going to be an ongoing assistance in any way, that he was really wanted to turn America back to the way things were when he was a boy. And so he was very much interested in patriotic stuff and politics. He thought we could turn this around. Some years later, my father spoke with him again, stopped in at his office and visited with him. By then, he was pretty much cleaning out his office because he had been quite ill, almost died, gave control of the company to his the rest of his family. And he didn't now even control the family money because at one point it looked like he was going to die. And at any rate, he told my father, he said... I would have accomplished a lot more if I had taken your advice and invested in Christian education and building Christian schools than investing in politics, because that's a kingdom building thing. And those Christian schools weren't perfect, but I'm still meeting people who went to some of those little Christian schools, many of which don't even exist anymore, but they were a dedicated kingdom work to somebody who wanted to do something for God, and it had great, great impact. And I also meet a lot of people who went to public schools, and they and they have to say somewhat apologetic. You know, I have I'm still relearning the stuff that I got in public schools. And so, yes, in one area and after another, and we have to find new areas. I think uh, Christians, one of the good things they've done is in Christian schools, and then homeschooling and developing that. They need to do that in other areas as well. And so we need to find a way that we could further the kingdom of God, because that furthers, if we're doing his will, if we're teaching others to do his will, we're basically bringing more people under God's planning, God's law, and God's government. That is ultimately the only thing that's going to survive, because 
so much of what we see in our culture today, it's it's not a threat to the kingdom of God. It's a it's a suicidal course, and it's not going to last any more than the humanistic fads of the past have lasted. But we do see it's, and I think it's somewhat comparable to what Paul was describing in Romans 1 about moral degeneracy of uh, the unredeemed, and we're seeing that in our culture. It's it's going downhill, but it doesn't mean it's going to just get worse. It's what we are seeing is going to come to an end. Yes, and I think that's something you said earlier actually should be encouraging to people that not any one person, not any one group can get credit for having furthered the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is furthered by God's Holy Spirit and God's predetermined predestined outcome. So why are we here? Well, he chose to do the work of the kingdom through his servants. And as you pointed out, the parables are full of that. Servants that did it right, servants that didn't do it right. And so we should be encouraged that it really doesn't depend on us, but we will be judged as to whether or not we feared God, kept his commandments. And what we can always say is, I know what why I'm doing what I'm doing. I know why I'm supporting what I support. And my emphasis is on the truth, not on becoming acceptable to people who may or may not really worship the living and true God. And this is when we see things that are just so disconcerting and just ridiculous in our culture. We say, well, that's just, it should be an incentive to us to uh, make it easier for us to live in terms of the commands of God and live in terms of the reality of his kingdom. I think it's easier to see the antithesis with anti-Christian behavior than it was when I was young or, you know, the middle of the 20th century or early in the 20th century. I think a lot of people were really confused about secular versus religious perspectives and there's less confusion about that. The, the, the divide is becoming more and more obvious. And if the divide is becoming more and more obvious, then certainly our responsibility should become more and more obvious. We have truth, we have life, and we need to live in terms of that and teach our families to do so. So the antithesis is more clear now than it's ever before between the ways of God and the ways of evil. So I remember as a kid, there was the King Kong movies and he was going to destroy and there was Godzilla. And I think too many Christians look at what's currently happening is that these big monsters are somehow all powerful. The truth is that Paul was talking to a people who saw big monsters Martin Luther and John Calvin were talking to people who saw big monsters. God gave us men like Cornelius Van Til and your father who saw big monsters. So guess what? Big monsters must be part of human history, and God defeats them all. Right. And the Roman Empire hadn't even reached its peak of uh, power when Christ left the disciples with the responsibility to spread his kingdom. So it was a very difficult time to be crossing Rome in the early centuries of the church. And they did pay for it at times, but Rome collapsed and Rome is irrelevant now. And we're still fighting the battles of the kingdom and advancing the kingdom. And you say they paid the price. That's why I'm so grateful that God bookended the Bible with the book of Revelation because we find out that those who paid the price obtain a reward. And we get to see by his word that that's what's happening. So if you're just here and your human life on earth is the only thing that matters, yeah, you could be really discouraged. But God gave us a window into heaven to say, yeah, let me show you what the people who came before you, what your great cloud of witnesses are all about right now. And to me, that's encouraging. So read the news or listen to the news or scan through your feed to find out maybe the latest nonsense, but it's the word of God that you must use to interpret that nonsense as opposed to saying, this is the worst time that's ever been in the history of the world. 
Yeah, it's the end of the an era because the assumptions and the beliefs and the the, the worldview of the Enlightenment are just coming crashing down around it, and the people who are following this current trend are not happy people. They're not people of the future. They're people with a death wish. They they've lost sight of reality, and we know what's real. That's what the the Bible tells us what's real and what we can live in terms of. And we have every hope and reason to be encouraged by the fact that God is not a loser and we're on the winning side of time and eternity. Amen to that. All right. Thanks, Mark. I, I hope this brought the whole concept of predestination into greater focus for people that it's going to be God's way or somebody else's way, and that somebody else's way doesn't prevail. You mentioned your father's book, Sovereignty, and it's a big one. Any other direction you want to send listeners to in terms of understanding this concept better? One book they might want to look at is his book called The Mythology of Science, because so much of what's going on today is supposedly science and modern man, because he only believes in the, the physical world. Everything he wants to say is scientific and he's standing in terms of the science. And yet my, the point my father makes in that book is that as the title implies that we now are an age of a myth and Men believe in myths now to an extent they've never believed in them before. Darwinism is, is a, is a classic example. The truth is religiously understood and we should be confident in the fact that we have the truth and that we are not standing in terms of an obscure religious creed that, that was outdated 2000 years ago, but in fact that we have the truth and we, we stand on very, very solid ground, and we should be confident in that. Yes. Okay. Thanks for that. And I would also like to encourage people, when you go to calcine.edu and you go to the tag on the top that says resources, not only did Dr. Rush Juni have books on the subject that Mark is referring to, but he lectured, he gave sermons, he gave talks on it. So especially for those who spend a lot of time in the car or doing things that they could be listening, these are important things because these books, I believe, are also available as audiobooks. And so as we proceed with the collapse, the fatal diagnosis of humanism, rather than be sad, we should be soberly optimistic and working to have replacements in place when these systems fail, because that will be when Christian reconstruction comes into its fullest, don't you think? Yes. We have a, this is, my father often said, these are exciting times in which to be alive. Sometimes they're a little too exciting, <laughs> but um, we are living at a crux uh, of, of history and History is changing dramatically, and we can see that in a lot of ways. This is going to be a very different world in uh, 20 or 30 or 40 years, and we're part of this time that is changing, and therefore we have to be part of the change for the, for the positive and towards the advance of the Christian faith and the kingdom of God. Yes. All right, listeners, out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how to get in touch with us. And we look forward to you joining us next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.